To another episode of SG Explained I'm your host, Alien And joining me as always, uh, my partner in crime Mr. Rovic, how you doing? Hello, hello, hello It's good to be back <laughs> we, can, we can always an episode without you saying that all. You know, I didn't want it to like cramp your style So I tried to avoid nah, you know, it's, using it's it It's my catchphrase, it's my catchphrase <laughs> I love it, I love it, I love it Yeah, that's uh, much ideas, right? And I had just says hello, hello, hello Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> Well, how, how was your week? Good, good, good. I, I mean, I was at Reservist, so it was my first uh-huh. Reservist in seven years. You know, I, I do notice that actually we haven't done many national service-related uh, episodes. And I think it's quite intentional because, you know, we don't want to be cliche with some of these things. But it was it was such an interesting experience being back in camp. I haven't been back for Reservist for seven years because, you know, I went overseas to study. It took some time for me to come back. It was definitely an experience. Lots of ideas churning in my head around future episodes we could do. Uh, so stay tuned. <laughs> I, I can tell you I'm not an expert on this. I, I've i never been to a service ever. Yeah, just a fun fact for our listeners. You know what? I actually left National Service as a recruit. I never finished anything inside. What? I, I did do some fun things like, you know, working on National Day parades. That was actually two years of my life. Oh, right. You went to win the music and drama. Well, no, no. I was, I was in guards, uh, but they attached me out to work because you know the formations are usually in charge of the NDP segments right so what they did is that they they looked at me and said hey you're really good at writing uh, we're going to put you to work on the show I, I would love to do a deep dive into like an army episode just because I actually did get to experience it the same way most people do uh, Elliot I know you got your first shot you got vaccinated now, I want to be a responsible citizen first and foremost and funny story we're recording this episode on Monday afternoon and usually we record it on the weekends because you know weekends are around leisure time uh, but I was so sick I, I felt so ill that I just could not get out of bed and I had to tell Rovic twice like yo can we move it to tomorrow and then yesterday I said today you know so it was it was this whole whole cycle Pfizer Pfizer was supposedly a great choice everyone recommended it to me but my body was just not having any of it but Elliot you've recovered and you are you know you're doing well so for all those listening go get vaccinated go get vaccinated no it was it was a painless process like for the jab itself 10 out of 10 times I would do it again <laughs> just I know I'm a weak person by nature like that's me <laughs> in a nutshell I don't know if you've listened to the the online video that's out there right now by gov.sg but it's you know he goes let's test let's trace let's vaccinate and it's a it's a pretty catchy jingle uh, I think you know definitely go check it out are they going to make it to a musical next year when uh, things tied over maybe maybe it's an NDP song who knows <laughs> it's an NDP song for next year yeah I, I'd be down for that I'd be down for that you know we're just in time to talk about something which I actually missed yesterday uh, I have planned this episode because I'm still someone who partakes in this bit of culture uh, on an almost weekly basis. The topic of today is actually on wet markets in Singapore. Yeah, you know, the place that your grandma or grandpa goes on the weekend to pick up vegetables and all your groceries. Uh, something which young people nowadays, I, I hardly see, but I, I follow my mom uh, quite religiously. And I thought it'd be interesting to see the evolution of it 
as well as where it stands <laughs> amongst society in 2021. Wet markets are definitely such an interesting part of our landscape. I think we're so used to supermarkets these days. I'll admit my own bias, right? I'm used to the cleanliness and the orderliness of a sterile environment. As I've traveled around the world and as I've gotten just more educated about how farmers and wholesalers and market sellers, how they all work, I think just appreciating the craft of like a butcher or a fishmonger uh, getting to see them freshly, you know, prepare your food, your produce, so that you can take home and cook it fresh. I think that's a it's a whole new perspective that that I've started to appreciate. So actually, these days I try to go to a wet market or even like a, a wet butcher or, or, or a fishmonger, right, uh, without needing to to necessarily depend on supermarkets altogether. So I, I think what we're gonna do for this episode is uh, take two very particular views. The first one is we're going to go through an old school, as you explained, fashion. We're going to take us through like the history and the origin story of wet markets here. We'll, we'll define some terms for everyone, as well as introduce some policies, some key players. Uh, but afterwards, I thought it'd be interesting to talk as well uh, about what those markets look like today. And Surprise, surprise, there is a lot of uh, money involved in these institutions, so to speak. So without further ado, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of SG Explains the Wet Market. Let's define what a wet market is, right? The term wet markets is derived from the market's wet flows, which are caused by the melting of ice that is normally used to ensure the freshness of seafood sold and by stallholders who routinely clean their stalls by spraying them with water. I'm not sure, Elliot, if you've been in a wet market during this cleaning session. Oh, yeah, 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 I have. <laughs> yeah, the trick is to never wear your nice shoes to a wet market. <laughs> <laughs> never wear anything nice to a wet market, dude. So that when you walk around and, you know, if the stallholder is going to be on his uh, cleaning routine, you want to make sure that, even if anything gets sprayed onto you, you're able to wash it and, you know, it's not designer stuff. It's the one-time Crocs, to me, are acceptable footwear. <laughs> you know, it's at the wet market. Traditionally, the wet market is divided into a wet section where fresh produce, meat, fish, and live animals are sold and a dry section where stalls selling goods such as spices, rice, and other dried goods. In the more traditional ones, I think you'll see like they'll have sacks uh, where the spices are, are, are at. Nowadays, wet markets usually have a food center attached to them, but this isn't always the case, especially in the older establishments. The term wet markets was introduced in the early 1970s when the Singapore government tried to distinguish these markets from air-conditioned supermarkets, which we just talked about, that had become popular with the opening of Fitzpatrick's supermarket in Orchard Road in 1958. Yeah, and that was like the first one that we had was really established. Like people were using it as a regular replacement to where they were getting their groceries. So with the changing in times, I think the government had to really say like, okay, so these are classified as wet markets and these are supermarkets. And with that definition, I thought we'd step back into the past, like the 1800s, uh, even, you know, just during pre-colonial times to see like, what did those markets look like then? However, throughout my research, I found that there really wasn't a lot of information that could be found about pre-colonial markets in Singapore. Luckily for me, the National Heritage Board uh, actually offered some insight into the early days of what the grocer situation looked like. In fact, in the 1800s, 
1800s markets, you know, they were actually just categorized as comprising of like loose clusters of vendors and peddlers. And they had all their wares kind of like splayed out on the, on the ground or in baskets. And sometimes they even had a shed above. So it wasn't like there were organized ways of getting to a market. It just happened because communities were all pretty sporadic in the early 1800s. This sounds very similar to the hawker culture episode that we did, right? So as a throwback, go check out that episode. But the hawker culture episode had a very similar angle. And actually, if you go to some of the countries in the region, uh, you'll still see wet markets that are very similar to what we just described. Absolutely. In fact, there's there's a very strong reasons of why that was the case. A lot of these hawkers who are cooking, you know, and even till today, there's a lot of cross-collaboration, so to speak. You would get your ingredients from the wet market side and you just cook it on your end. Like you didn't have to have your own supply chain because the supply chain literally exists as a neighbor, which I think was always interesting. Uh, what, what I did find was that one of the earliest official markets that were commissioned to be built, earliest traced history, is in 1822 uh, when Sir Stanford Raffles ordered the construction of a market near the north end of Market Street, which would become the predecessor of the former Telok Ayer Market. So Telok Ayer Market has had many shifts. This is the the original one, patient zero, so to speak. Some of you might remember our good old friend, Colonel Farquhar. He subsequently recommended that the market be relocated to the site just to the south end of the street. And I thought that was funny. It's not very far in terms of a movement. But he said, yeah, not the north. I uh, will put it to south. Feng Shui, maybe. Who knows? Farquharian Feng Shui. Uh, when Telok Ayer Market first opened in 1825, uh, interestingly, it extended over the sea and allowed jetties to load and unload produce directly onto boats. So we had our own little, you know, island, like fishery drop-off, so to speak. Eventually, the market was replaced by a new market designed by Singapore's first architect, uh, George Drumgold Coleman. Uh, but it was later demolished in 1841. So we didn't really keep this for very long. Where Telok Ayer Market stands today isn't exactly the original site. And the reason it was demolished was because it was unable to meet the marketing needs of the growing population in Chinatown. Based on our other episodes, I'm assuming that the diaspora is already sort of happening uh, during these times. We're seeing a lot of merchants and travelers coming in. So uh, it's very likely that those two are linked somehow. In addition to Telok Ayer Market, um, other markets were built in different parts of Singapore to serve the different villages and enclaves that had sprung up. So notable ones include Lao Pasat, uh, Ellenborough Market, which sounds really atas. I had a lot of fun looking at that. Uh, Clyde <laughs> Terrace Market, which is also known as Pase Besi. Uh, Rocho Market, which is at Pase Rocho. Kadam Kabao Market, Tanjung Paga Market, and Orchard Road Market. During this period in late 1840s, 1850s, uh, the Municipal Council monitored the business practices and codes of conduct within the markets. Our first look into regulation and, and kept a record of the goods sold at these markets. While all the markets sold fish, beef, uh, you know, chicken and ducks, uh, there were selected foods that were available only at certain markets. This was very commonplace back then. I think it was very normal for people to travel to find specific spices at markets that had a higher ethnic population surrounding it. So imagine your your old school like Geylang Sarai Market. It would have very much your Malay sort of like spices, your chili parties, for example, would, would generally be there. Nowadays, it's much more homogenous. But there, I heard that there are some places which stock very specific kinds of ingredients as well. That would make sense just because Early days of Singapore's colonial history, a lot of the populations were ethnically clustered, right? And that's in town planning design, right? You have Chinatown, Little India, and and Kampong Klam, but also 
I think it was just a way that communities started to form when they, you know, highly immigrant populations. So the wet market sort of became another you know, watering hole or common spot for these ethnic groups to find food and find spices and ingredients that they needed for their cuisines. So it's, it's definitely very interesting. Of course, once we start to move closer to independence, things start to evolve, right? So the development of wet markets can be attributed to the relocation of street hawkers and the development of public housing in the 1950s and 1960s. You want to learn about street hawkers, check out hawker culture. If you want to learn public housing, check out our public housing episode. We've covered a lot of stuff. I love how we've kind of like modularized this. So you can kind of, you know, double click on each of these episodes just by, by going checking them out in our Spotify. Very holistic education we're offering here, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After independence in 1965, street hawking became prevalent and poor sanitation and hygiene concerns led the Singapore government to relocate street hawkers to purpose-built facilities, which are known today as wet markets come hawker centers. One of the earliest wet markets to be built was Tiong Baru Market in 1950. And if it's the same Tiong Baru Market that I'm thinking about, it still exists. It still exists, yeah. This was followed by more wet markets in Chinatown and Little India, as well as in newly developed housing estates such as Queensan and Topayo. From the 1950s to the 1990s, wet markets were mostly standalone structures, although they may be integrated as part of neighborhood centers. And if you've listened to the public housing episode, you'll know that actually moving forward, when they started doing town planning, they actually made sure that at the center of every town center, there was some sort of a wet market or supermarket center, right? So this was a big part of town planning. By the 1990s, it became increasingly common to find wet markets as part of a mall, such as Pongol Market, which was situated at the basement of Pongol Plaza, or the wet market at Elias Mall, which opened in March 2011 and is also, incidentally, the first air-conditioned wet market in Singapore. During this time, the live slaughter of poultry at wet markets was also phased out and relocated to centralized abattoirs, and the cold chain system was introduced in 1999 and required meat to be kept chill throughout the entire preparation process. Now, if you are wondering why this is important, I think, you know, take one step back and think about COVID-19, right? And how <laughs> COVID-19 emerged because of a lot of, well, you know, based on existing knowledge. It emerged because of some of the practices at Redmark, where in some of the rural parts of China, where, you know, actually you have a bit less of a, of a hygienic system around treating of, you know, fresh meat. There's a lot of disease that can carry over uh, and it can, of course, create the right environment for, for viruses and stuff like that to emerge. Thinking about hygiene, thinking about making sure that we had the end-to-end -end system in place to prevent the proliferation of diseases. When you mentioned COVID, actually last year in Parliament, we had a Senior Minister of State of Environment and Water Resources, Dr. Amy Kaur, uh, actually talking about some of the policies or in place to help these wet markets. Kind of like, uh, you know, people had concerns, especially about live slaughter or sale of live produce in the markets. So she actually had to come out to talk about how the transmission risks although are found to be low, they have to be, you know, the standards have to be maintained. And these hop back all the way uh, to 1999 where we talk about the cold chain system and making sure that the food hygiene standards are really adhered to date in order to prevent contamination. That's always been one of the biggest concerns and maybe maybe a bit extreme for me to say, but also like a stereotype of, of the wet markets being dirtier that say your fair price or your Xing Xiong, but they are actually kept to very stringent rules 
uh, on a year-by-year basis, as Dr. Amy Kaur, uh kind of reassured us. Wet markets will continue to play an important symbolic role, if anything, about the ability for fresh produce and like very organic sense of like how we do things. Because the supermarket, while also very efficient and there's no doubt that it's also probably trying to get fresh produce to you. Uh, it has this very clinical and very industrial feel to it. So wet markets pre- preserve that sense of community as well because it's you get to talk to the people who are who are cutting your food. You it's the same person every day, so you get to know them. It's almost like oh, a yeah. craft. And and I think we said this in the durian episode, but every guy needs to have a butcher or fishmonger. Uh, and a durian <laughs> guy, right? So you don't have to go to like a fancy butcher. It could just be a wet market butcher. I have a very good relationship with the guy who sells me poultry every single week. So much so that when my mom goes without me, he, he always asks like, hey, where's your son? Why is he not helping you? I get guilt tripped into not being there. <laughs> so since the 1990s, over a hundred markets, come hawker centers have been built. And up to 2013, Singapore had 107 wet markets and hawker centers in total. And they're located in different parts of Singapore, making them accessible to all Singaporeans. And the reason why these numbers are collated, meaning it's wet markets and hawker centers, is again, like we said, because at a certain point, they started to be treated as one unified whole right, because of the relationships that they have between them as well. They started getting, even during the refurbishment as we'll talk about after the break, that's when a lot of consolidation happened. It, it had very distinct areas for not just for dry goods and wet goods, but eventually even just cooked food, right? The the eat the eatery area was part of the design. It wasn't like an addendum as uh, in previous times, we, they would just build like a link bridge or like a walkway to join like a hawker center with said wet Getting your groceries is an essential part of our life. It's been monitored and developed extremely well here. We're we're quite lucky, so to speak, that the accessibility and uh, might I say, we didn't really touch on this, but affordability of things in the wet market has always been very competitive till this very day. All right. So we're going to be taking a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the different types of markets that have existed in Singapore, you know, what was unique about it. And then we're also going to be looking at the future of wet markets, really, you know, what's next for for the scene and are they at risk just like hawker centers are. So stay tuned. And glad you're listening to this episode and are part of the SG Explainers community. You're special because you're part of a group of people who are joining us to understand the Singaporean identity through a wide variety of topics. Ali and I do this completely out of passion, but we do incur costs to use software, equipment, and not to mention the time spent. We're hoping that you may consider supporting the SG Explained effort in one of two ways. If you click on the podcast description of the podcast you're listening to, you'll see a link that says support this podcast with a link to anchor.fm slash sg dash explain slash support. A contribution as small as 99 cents when added up by all our community members can go a long way for us. The second way is that if you want more bonus content for your buck, we've launched an email newsletter. That's right. All the content that doesn't make it to the podcast, including our own perspectives, videos, and pictures, as well as links to more resources can be found in these email digests that provide compact information for your on-the-go reading. For five US dollars a month, basically the cost of a bubble tea, through Substack, you can get a digest a week with great content. 
the internet has allowed you, the consumer, to directly express your support to creators like us without needing to depend on brand sponsors too much. We hope you can give whatever you feel comfortable with. Here at SG Explained, Elliot and I are committed to getting great guests, conducting thorough research, and bringing you quality explainers on all things Singaporean. Thank you for being part of our community. All right, welcome back, everyone. I hope that you had a good, fulfilling break. Rover and I actually took a break this time, which was interesting. Don't give out our secrets, Elliot. If <laughs> hey, we do these breaks for you guys more than we do it for ourselves, so you can timestamp your things a bit better. But we're gonna we're gonna shift our attention away from like you know the macro picture of markets into something a bit more specific. Every single market that uh, we're gonna talk about, and I can't list all 107 for brevity reasons. They all had great stories to them. Some of it is just on the surface, you know, you're, you're out of the mill. But when we start talking about upgrading works, that's when it gets really spicy. So the first one on the list that I found was uh, Kabun Baru Market. So Kabun Baru Market is, uh, was originally built in 1976, now known as Kabun Baru Market and Food Center. A lot of them actually are Yaya Yaya ya, ya Market and Food Center, but I've short formed everything. It's just, you know, that market. And it serves the marketing and dining needs of residents living in the Kabun Baru area, which is situated in Ang Mo Kyo. Now, on 8th of February 2000, one of the notable things that happened here was that a fire broke out during the Chinese New Year period, which caused extensive damage to the market and resulted in, obviously, a great inconvenience la, to the storeholders and residents. However, what was heartening for me uh, was that uh, the incident actually proved to be like a rallying point for the Kabun Baru Citizens Consultative Committee uh, and storeholders and residents as they worked towards setting up a temporary market while repairs to the damaged market took place. Uh, within six months, the market was rebuilt and reopened. So in June 2009, the market and food center underwent you know, upgrading works. And on 28th March 2010, the Kerbun Baru Market and Food Center officially reopened after a $1.89 million facelift. Uh, with the upgrading, the food center saw a 30% increase in seating capacity. Each store was made bigger, which was always one of the major issues back in the day. And the passageways were widened to facilitate increased traffic flow. Also, something which I didn't get to write down in my show notes was that uh, I realized during this period of time, a lot of wheelchair and disability accessible features were actually placed in. We talked a lot uh, in one of our previous episodes about, you know, aging population. It coincides with that same timeline as, as, uh, all upgrading works by necessity were looking at how they could make things more uh, elderly friendly and more uh, disability friendly. Yeah, it really sounds like Kabun Baru Market was like a phoenix, right? It rose from the ashes and basically <laughs> became like a benchmark uh, wet market for that time. You know, that's a really positive way of, of looking at it. Of course, it sucks that you know the fire caused such damage and probably inconvenience, right? Uh, I mean, all these folks couldn't be selling their stuff during that time but at least now things are much better to this day Kabul Bar Market is actually like one of the more uh, popular markets still for residents to, to frequent it's very crowded on the weekends so if you're thinking of visiting just for grocery shopping I would say 
you got to be prepared. <laughs> yeah, I've never actually seen Kabunbaru Market, so I'm I'm quite curious about this place. Of course, I generally don't go to Amokyo area, so See. you know. Now the next market you probably heard of it before. It's called the Geelong Sarai Market, and the original market was opened on 17 April 1975 by then Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew. The single story market proved to be very popular with locals and tourists, and as we all know by now, during the Hari Raya period, a makeshift marketplace would be set up next to the market to sell Hari Raya goodies. Over the next two decades, the market became increasingly run down, though. And in February 2006, the Geelong Sarai market underwent redevelopment works. This was an $18.2 million upgrading, which allowed it to reopen on July 2009. Now, the Geelong Sarai market has around 302 market stalls in the market, and it has around 63 cooked food stalls. So it's the third largest hawker center in Singapore and one of the most popular, especially with the Malay community. Now, the market was designed in close consultation with grassroots groups and stallholders, and the building contains features of old Malay homes such as sloping roofs, intricate batik motifs, as well as decorative details like louvres and timber panels. Its ground floor houses a wet market, while the second floor comprises a food center, as well as stalls selling household items and clothes. Super interesting place. I think we tend to remember Geelang Sarai as a place for the Hari Raya markets. Uh, and like we said, you know, there's all kinds of goodies that are sold. It's almost like a yearly ritual to go down and see some of the new Pasamalam stalls, right? Maybe we have to do a whole episode on what Pasamalams are, but makeshift stalls, right? And it's selling innovative stuff sometimes. The core of the market is the wet market. And, and this is really where the Malay community in that area tends to really frequent as well. One of the interesting things about the Geelang Sarai market, which I enjoy, is that it has a very rich textile section in the dry goods area. So we normally think of dry goods as like spices, you know, your general like uh, dried seafood, dried meats and, and whatnot. But there is a very prominent textile section, which my cousins who, who are Malay Muslim, they actually go there to craft their yearly outfits for Hari Raya, which I think is a very oh, wow. interesting thing. Like you go to the market to get your outfits done. So that's Geylang Sarai Market. Uh, another one which I personally have not been to, but supposedly it's another very big one in Ang Mokyo is a Chongbun Market and Food Center. This one was built slightly um, later in 1979. So compared to uh, the Kebun Baru Market, this one is one of the older markets in, in Ang Mokyo. It has 28 cooked food stalls and 184 market stalls. And since its opening, it has been the preferred venue for walkabouts conducted by uh, members of parliament and cabinet ministers. So actually, it's part of the one of the main routes. Every time during election season, you will notice that MPs will tweet like, hey, we're heading down uh, to Chongbun Market to walk the grounds. <laughs> People actually camp there. You know, they'll sit by the stalls to try to get a, a conversation going with their MPs. Oh, I didn't know that. However, despite the recent upgrades at the market and food center to, you know, enhance facilities and improve the hygiene level, from what I, I read from National Heritage Board, the hawkers and stall holders lamented there hadn't been much improvement in business for them. Uh, this was caused that many customers during the downtime of, of upgrading works and stuff, they started frequenting other markets and food centers, one of them also being Kabun Baru, by the way, in order to, you know, get their, their daily stock. It also goes to show that some people ain't loyal. <laughs> some people ain't loyal. <laughs> Sorry, man. Hey, you guys were out for too long. So the next market I'm actually very familiar with just because when my family first came to Singapore when I was four, we went to Teka Market because this was where a lot of the Indian produce was. Teka Market's right next to Little India. 
So a lot of common produce and ingredients that we have for Indian cuisine was found in this market. It's located at Block 665 Buffalo Road, uh, but its original name was the Kandang Kerbal Market, which is a Malay name for Buffalo Pants. Uh, it's at the junction of Serangoon Road and Rocha Road, but it's useful to remember that its former site is currently occupied by Little India's first air-conditional mall, which is called The Verge, which was built in 2003. So now I remember both of these markets. The Kandang Kerba market was built by the Municipal Commission in 1915 at the cost of around $107,000. Now, back then, it was one of the more popular markets in Singapore because its stalls offered the best cuts of beef and mutton due to the market's proximity to the cattle ranches in the area. By the early 1950s, however, the market became overcrowded and congested and there was a pressing need for the market to undergo upgrading works. Now, it's also interesting because in Hokkien, the market was known as Ka, which means the foot of the small bamboos as bamboo plants once grew on the backs of the Rocha Canal. It was therefore adapted into a popular name Teka Pasa, where Pasa is Malay for market. In 1982, when the market was torn down and rebuilt at its current site, it was renamed as Zhujiao Center, which has a very, very Chinese-sounding name to it. And, you know, as much as we know that Teka is a Hokkien word, I think it just kind of blended into the overall Indian feels and vibes of that place. You know, it wasn't as very overtly Chinese. <laughs> yeah, the associations are very clear. The Chuchia market, it was built as a multi-use complex, which comprises a wet market, a food center, and shops. And, you know, Elliot, to your point earlier around textiles, right? Like this place has beautiful textiles in its shops. There's tons of saris and traditional clothes and, you know, modern clothes as well. It's actually quite a fascinating place to just explore. The general public found it difficult to read and pronounce Chuchiao, uh, especially, again, if you think of the fact that most of its patrons were from Little India, right? So they they could not really pronounce it. It did not bear any resemblance to the old name of Teka. So in 2000, it was renamed, reverted back to Teka Center, and the market in the center came to be known as the Teka Market. Teka just rolls off the tongue so much easier than saying Chuchiao. Like, even as a Chinese guy who speaks Chinese, I don't even like saying the word Zuziao. It sounds so clunky in the mouth. So I'm glad you write this wrong by not by not calling it the Zuziao Center. This was in the time when they were trying to move away from dialects, right? And they were trying to encourage just Mandarin because Zuziao means it's a pinyin version of Teka. I imagine that they were trying to, to Mandarinize everything. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. You know, according to some of my restaurant F&B friends, they actually like going to Teka market to uh, get fresh flowers, uh, flowers that they normally use for cooking. Uh, Tika Center is said to be one of the bigger wholesalers uh, for flowers that are used in uh, in the preparation of dishes. And, and our last market that we really wanted to tackle today is one that I personally love quite a fair bit. It's the Tiongbaru market. Now, the original Tiongbaru market was built in 1950 as just this single story market. Uh, and back then, it wasn't even called Tiongbaru market. Um, it was called Singapore market. And this market was constructed uh, by the Singapore Improvement Trust following a petition by street hawkers in the area who operated in fear of being chased away by the authorities. So it wasn't actually a thing. And hence they were like, yo, before we get asked to be shooed away from this site, let's let's officialize it. Give let's make something home. legit. Yeah, give us a home. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, from 2004 to 2006, the, the market actually underwent extensive upgrading works at the cost of 
$16.8 million. And despite its modern design and the addition of better facilities, uh, the reopened market blended well with its surroundings, consisting mainly of two to five-story apartments built in the Art Deco architecture style. So if you go to Tiong Bahru Market today, you'll notice that it is in a pretty atas uh, well, old school, rustic atas sort of neighborhood. You look at it, it's very scenic. Personally, Tiong Bahru, one of my favorite places. Till date, uh, it has 83 hawker stalls and 250 wet market and retail stores. The new Tiong Bahru market now has an expanded seating capacity of 1,440 seats. Actually, if you go to the hawker stalls, a lot of famous uh, dishes there as well. I think the beef noodles is one of them for those of you who are interested. It's definitely a very popular place. Every time I've gone both to eat at the food center as well as to go shopping at the wet market. I've always had to like push myself against different people to, to get around. It's a very hustling and busting place. So if you like that energy, right, I think, you know, if you go to a wet market compared to a supermarket, part of the allure is also just that vibrancy and energy. Yeah, Tiong Bahru market is prime area for that. Those are the markets that we want to talk about. Uh, and learning about, you know, the refurbishment works, how much we're actually spending on these things is, I guess it's not surprising since it's part of our national heritage. But still, uh, I thought we would take some time to talk a little bit about our own thoughts and what does the future of wet markets look like? In October 2011, the government announced that it will be building an additional 10 hawker centers uh, with their cooked food and wet market sections over the next decade. So we're actually at that decade mark right now. For me personally, it was difficult to find out where these new wet markets have sprung. It's definitely interesting. I imagine that they probably exist in some of these newer estates like Pongol. So anytime you see a BTO, right? Oh yeah, that's true. That they are building new townships. And whenever they build new townships, I imagine that they're also building some of these markets. They probably did not keep track of this or like publish an update on this. But I think in general, now that Hawker culture is a UNESCO protected. I imagine that wet markets also have to be rightfully protected alongside it because as you mentioned before, there's a very strong synergy between, you know, hawker centers and wet markets, especially in your ability to get fresh produce and your ability to have that authentic environment, right? Where you, you feel like you are just having a day out. You're going to get like accessible, uh, low cost food. Right. And you get that interaction with your stallholder, right? Whether it's the wet market owner or the guy selling your spices or your auntie selling your wonton mee, right? Like that level of interaction you cannot get in uh, a mall restaurant or a supermarket. So these things need to be protected altogether. And from what we read about, the government is interested in forking out a good amount of money to preserve and give refurbishment to these Asian markets. I think we've seen, you know, millions of dollars being spent. Uh, and even with the rapid growth of supermarket chains across Singapore, conservation effort is placed in order to upkeep this communal lifestyle that the what market offers. And it's that, it's that community spirit. It's the closest thing to kampong spirit, I would say. I think what's interesting, like, I know that amongst our peers, it's more often the case that, you know, out of 10 friends, nine of them probably still go, maybe nine and a half of them probably still go to like supermarkets in order to uh, get their goods. Even like, even just to say, uh, for those who love cooking, it's still the fact that they'll say, Hey, I'll drop by. Maybe it's the accessibility component. You know, that, that's my personal thought. Uh, how often does someone our age have the time early in the morning, 6 a.m. to go pick up groceries and then like dash off to work? Um, usually my friends, they will buy groceries after work, go home, then cook it. Wet markets don't open that late. 
<laughs> in general. Yeah, I mean, they're focused on freshness, right? They want to get it straight from the trucks or straight from the pots and then sell it to you so that you know it's fresh. There are some interesting stall owners who move towards live streaming. I know Mark Lee is helping some of these guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> Celebrities doing this kind of stuff in order to increase revenue through online sales. So, you know, there is innovation and adaptation happening. I do enjoy, uh, you know, waking up at 8 a.m., picking up my groceries, go to the to the food side, the cooked food section, eat my meat pot, and then be like done with my day. Like I'm just like head home, rest. Especially when we look at dining and we look at markets, I think there's a big question around how long are these going to last, right? Like KFC has gone around talking about this as well. Like we are so used to delivery services and deliveries are not the same as going down to a hawker center, going down to a market to get stuff yourself. It's also about the efficiency, right? If we continue uh, participating in the delivery economy, then we will move closer towards models like cloud kitchens and maybe even cloud markets, right? You don't need a physical store to do retail or to do direct sales. Actually, all you need is a distribution center and you can still provide freshness. You can still provide customized cuts even, but you don't need to be in a wet market to do that. So I think it's a big question around what what will exist beyond today, right? Like if we don't appreciate the community element of things and we are all about efficiency, all about, you know, cost optimization, that's fine. But we will lose some of this common space that's been created, right? We will move towards that cloud model. I personally, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, of course, I'm just one person. I, I, Elliot, I feel like two people would probably... Yeah, well, be two of us who are like, who are fighting like, yo, let's go back to, the, to those days. And it's not so much about going back. It's about keeping part of it, but also evolving with the times, yeah, that's for sure. Keeping it relevant. Yeah. Well, so those are some of our parting thoughts on this topic. Uh, you know, unlike some of our other episodes where we are seeing solutions in place, you know, from a very uh, top-down approach and even sometimes from grassroots activities, uh, one of the first few times at, at the very least where I don't think there's anything set in stone like it's still in our ballpark uh, it's not a pressing issue because there is an older generation who is who is like hard on like you know hitting these places up and providing that business that economical cycle that keeps it going I would dare say that I'm one of the few people in my age group who religiously still goes where we don't have the answers but it's something that we hope by putting this out there It'll be something that we can uh, ponder across across uh, the next couple of years. That has been our episode for SG Explained this week on wet markets. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. We did mention these locations, uh, some of the addresses are there. Uh, lots of good food, so do go check it out if you if you are if you have some free time. Moving, you and I should catch up once again for another meal at one of these markets. Maybe we'll do a live cast when we're there on TikTok. Hey, <laughs> hey, yeah, can I show you? Yeah, you should follow Rovio. TikTok he's doing he's, he's been promoting us on TikTok dude we've been trying to see whether TikTok works for for us so you know just clips of Elliot and I recording our podcast we'll, we'll cut it and we'll put it on TikTok if you want to check us out go TikTok search Rovic the Wanderer and you'll see we're just starting out we're, we're putting up clips give us ideas and if you know how to help us do well on TikTok reach out to us we sound like boobers like yo can you help me with the TikToks I I don't know how to make the TikTok. It's hard, man. It's not easy. I, I didn't think it. So if you can help us with that, we're, we're good with podcasting and YouTube, but TikTok says, wow, it's a new new thing. Help us out. All right. And with that, uh, I 